We are in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 743. That's page 743. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it's been quite some time since we've been in chapter one, so we've got to do a little recap this morning. But we'll get there in just a minute. Uh, just, just as off as a starter, in Haggai we see that God is sovereign and he remains the same in worship and in glory and in covenant. In God's mercy, he brings Judah out of exile in order to establish that glory once again. We also see that the people of God are the same, namely that they are sinful and rebellious. So if you're taking notes this morning, a summary sentence, if you will, God remains, or excuse me, God maintains his covenant faithfulness while calling his people to worship him in covenant relationship. God maintains his covenant faithfulness while calling his people to worship him in covenant relationship. The challenge for us today comes as this. How will we live out our lives in covenant relationship? How will we live out our lives in covenant relationship? Will we hope in God and put our trust that he is enough? Will we find hope in what he has promised to come? The three points that I'll make this morning are this. The present condition of the temple, the promise of divine presence and strength, in the future condition of the temple. So just a little recap and a little context as we dive into chapter 2 this morning. So we'll do a little biblical theology. Ultimately, that is that we're going to pull out a theme that's running across Scripture. The temple is where God dwells with his people. Now, initially, God dwelt perfectly in the garden with Adam and Eve. Then during the Exodus, God gives instruction to build a tabernacle, that is a, a mobile tent. And then years later, Solomon builds a temple, the first temple. And the people were exiled because of their covenant disobedience through God's sovereign hand by using Babylon, and then that temple was destroyed. We must see this morning the lack of a temple is symbolic of their relationship with God. And the lack of building the temple displays the people's sinful spiritual state. So that kind of brings us to where we're at now. The Lord sovereignly moved kings to let his people return to Jerusalem to build the temple. And we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai as we are in this morning, and Zechariah. They started building rather quickly, but their work was halted just as quickly. 
In chapter 1, we saw the Lord confront his people because his temple lied in ruin while they lived in these fancy houses. The Lord counseled them to consider their ways, and the beauty of that is that they repented and they started back the work of building the temple at the end of chapter 1. So this morning, if you're taking notes, the first point is the present condition of the temple. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, the first chapter ended with the people's zeal restored and working on building God's house had begun on the 24th day of the sixth month. That's, we, we see that in verse 15 of chapter 1. The second chapter opens by telling us that less than a month later, on the 21st day of that seventh month, the situation had changed yet again. So they had started when they first got there. They had stopped. God sent Haggai. They preached to them in chapter 1. He called them to consider their ways. They repented. They started building the temple. And now only about three weeks in, they're wondering, why are we doing this? They're despondent. The people had begun to compare the current temple that they were building to that of Solomon's temple. As John Calvin says in his commentary on Haggai, the people who had seen the splendor of the former temple considered this current temple to be no better than a cottage. Now, if you remember, the prophet Ezra documents this for us in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, where he says, But many of the priests and Levites and head of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from that, the sound of the people's weeping. We see the people had begun to compare their work, the current temple to that of Solomon's temple. And because of this, their heart melted as wax, and they were filled to a despondent state. But what does the Lord do? He has three questions that drives home a point. The questions initially seem out of place, yet the Lord is purposely pushing the people to understand their problem. To ask a question begs for an answer to be given. The Lord is wanting the people to communicate what they are feeling. The Lord is not randomly asking question to, questions to whomever. The Lord wants them to acknowledge 
their thoughts, and their feelings. The emphasis can be seen by how the questions are asked. Each question is focused on them by using the word or the pronoun you twice and your once in connection with seeing and thinking. The first question is this, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it? It is, is it not as nothing in your eyes? We see in this first question, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? The Lord identifies the older generation who had seen the first temple, that is Solomon's. The second question, how do you see it, seeks to know their opinion and thoughts regarding this current temple. The third question, is it not as nothing in your eyes? It is a leading question, if you will, to get to a specific answer. And that answer is yes. This temple was as nothing in their eyes. The reality behind the questions was the Lord was trying to drive home this point. They needed to understand their problem. They needed to be honest with themselves and recognize their state of despondency. Their lack of zeal and motivation could lead them to quit. And we know the history. They have quit once, they quit once already. And they have just started the work and now they feel the weight of it already. Oh, but this is not like the former temple. Their hearts were grieved and they were discouraged. Their lack of zeal and motivation could lead them to quit, to disobey, even to turn their backs and go back home. This could lead to being unfaithful to God in their covenant relationship. Ultimately, they did not understand God's covenant faithfulness, just as their fathers did in the Exodus. God did extraordinary works before their eyes, yet they would compare their lot and their situation to what they had left behind. In Egypt, they had meat pots and water. Oh, the former glory of what it was like to live in Egypt. They compared what they used to have. Oh, the former glory of the temple was far better than the one they were working on. Now, we find ourselves very much like the people Israel here. For we go through moods and have these feelings like this too, do we not? We start the Lord's work with joy, but there comes a time when we begin to compare. We compare our work, our church, our ministry, etc., with something else that seems greater or better. And this leads our, to our discouragement. In light of others' work, our work seems insignificant. 
and small. Have you ever found yourself turning your back quickly from what you started for the Lord? Do you ever find yourself reacting this way? Depression can overcome our motivation to obey. The heat of our situation and the burning despondency of our heart can evaporate the desire we have to do the Lord's will. And in so doing, we live as if we do not understand our God's covenant faithfulness. This morning, is it your lack of understanding God's covenant faithfulness leading you to compare, to lose hope, to doubt the future and cause you to give up? The reality is they were greatly in need of encouragement and thank God he had an antidote for their discouragement. So on to our second point, the promise of divine presence and strength. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Again, the words that the Lord uses does not seem to fit. Normally, we would not seem, it would not seem that a commandment would be encouraging. But this, in this case, it does. By giving a commandment, the Lord gives clarity to what they are to do. If you've ever found yourself depressed or in a despondent state, your mind is numbed. And the reality is, is disorientated. So giving clarity of what to do is what they needed to hear. They needed to hear the reality of what God had called them to do. Also, the words of these commandments have historical significance in the life of God's people. The commands themselves would have brought to mind God's covenant faithfulness. The Lord says three times to be strong, once to each group, to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the, the remainder of the people. Where have they heard this before? Where have we heard this before? In our scripture reading this morning, we heard it in Joshua chapter 1, particularly in verse 5 through 9. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, 
and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The language we see in Haggai is reminiscent of these verses where the commands be strong and be courageous are repeated three times to the audience they, that, that face similar discouragement because of the recent death of Moses and their concerns for the future. Who would lead them? It is that scene of discouragement in Joshua that Haggai evokes as a lesson sufficient to answer the discouragement of God's people in this time. Where else do we hear these words? We are reminded of the words of David to Solomon when instructing him to build the very first temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, 11 through 16. David saying, Now my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has spoken concerning you. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of all the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone too I have provided. To these you must add. You have an abundance of workmen, Stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work. The Lord be with you. These words of old not only gave clarity to what they are to do, but these words bolstered their heart to do the work that their forefathers did. Yet the, zeal, the real antidote to their despondent hearts was God's covenant faithfulness. The Lord says, I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. As John Calvin says, I am with you, he says. Now this one thing is enough for us. That is, when God declares that he is with us, for his aid we know is stronger than the whole world. His covenant faithfulness, he is with us, is enough. Just as the Lord's presence with the people made possible the completion of Solomon's temple, so it would be his presence that would make possible the completion of this second temple. Haggai's audience could draw strength from the realization that they were not alone in their work, that the Lord was indeed with them. And according to verse 5, the people were to draw encouragement from, for their task 
from the implications of the Lord's prior blessing upon them concerning the Mosaic covenant. The Lord's covenant faithfulness to, to his people has been witnessed since the time of their exodus from Egypt. As one commentator said it, the ancient prophet and the modern preacher alike share a conviction that God's word to past generations speak with equal force to present believers who stand in need of hearing God's message for their situation. The word is valuable. And that word this morning is God is enough. Who among us this morning needs to hear of God's covenant faithfulness? That he is with you. I am reminded of Philippians, as we've talked about it in our home this week. 1.6 tells us, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And again, in chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, one that's a little bit more hidden. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then we have this saying, the Lord is at hand. Meaning the Lord is present. Listen to what follows. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Church, we have not been delivered from a foreign city like the people in Haggai's day. But we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. Amen? We have been delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. We are at peace with God. We have the peace of God because we are His. And we have not been called to conquer a land like Joshua but we have been called to surrender ourselves to the Lord as his possession and as his dwelling place. Some of you here this morning may be struggling to know this peace because you're struggling to understand God's covenant faithfulness, that promise he does hold out to you this morning, that he is with you if you are his. And he is enough, regardless of the situation you find yourself in today. Our next week, our next year, your God is enough. But for some of you this morning, maybe you do not know God as a covenant keeper. You may not know his peace. And for you this morning, I would call you to trust in Christ for your salvation. You must understand that, that you cannot do it on your own. 
In every other religion outside of Christianity, they are trying to work towards God. Even those who would say they're not religious at all are, are trying to do good works, to earn merit, to earn favor with someone, some corporation, or even subconsciously in their mind to get favor with God. But Christianity is different. Where everyone else works to get to God, your God, the God of heaven and earth has come to us. And it's this Savior that we must trust in. But we must first understand that we're sinners in need of saving. And we must confess our sins. And we must repent of those sins and turn to Christ in faith. And in so doing, you can know this covenant-keeping God. You can know that He is enough for all situations in your life. Moving on to the third point, the future condition of the temple. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and in the dry, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of the nation shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord again through the mouth of Haggai encourages the people. The Lord this time speaks of what will, he will do in the future, which implies patience, which implies hope. I would encourage us this morning to see this section as having a double meaning, that of an immediate future and a latter future. He says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry lands, and I will shake the nations. Now, undoubtedly, kingdoms and empires would fall, and they did. The Persian Empire would gradually collapse to the Greeks. The Greek Empire did not last forever, but eventually were, was broken up by the Romans. James and Montgomery Boyce says, if there was ever a shaking of the nations and redistribution, redistribution of power, it was this period. Now, after first reading, God was encouraging the people that he would sovereignly provide for the temple. They could rest assured that he would provide the treasures necessary for finishing the temple. He says, yet... Once more, in a little while, I will. This statement is future-oriented as we see in the use of in a little while, I will. But we also see that God had done this before by the words, yet once more, which begs the question, where have we seen this? 
Again, we hearken back to the Exodus. The, this specific language was not used, but what is depicted in the shaking surely happened. God shook Pharaoh and Egypt through the ten plagues. So much so that with the last blow of Pharaoh's son, the people were finally let go. And we see also the Lord providing the silver and the gold as the people plundered the Egyptians in their hasty exit. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 through 36, this shaking yet once again is an allusion also to the announcement of the law on the Mount of Sinai, which was accompanied by a great physical commotion. We see this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thundering and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. We also see Psalm 68, verse 7 and 8 tell us this. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Yet there is a reason to think that God was also pointing to a more distant shaking. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews quotes Haggai's words and applies them to a shaking that will take place at God's final judgment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and following, at this time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, we also see by the phrase, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, points to this future fulfillment. To continue looking at this future fulfillment, we must look at this, what it means, latter glory of the house. We cannot conceive how the glory in any way could exceed that of the former. That is, what they're working on now, how does that exceed in any way the former, that is Solomon's temple? But only when we look to the future of the glory of the house that Christ Jesus is building. It is in this house, the temple where Christ is head over the church, that the peace of God resides. As he said, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The people of Haggai's day were called to be patient and to trust their covenant God would provide for the current temple 
in which they work to build, but it, to also maintain hope of a one who would fulfill all things. So for us, least we forget that this one who has come, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Christ is the one who has fulfilled all things. John points out in his gospel in chapter 1, when it says he dwelt among us, the word there is the Greek form of the Hebrew tabernacle. A, a former picture of God dwelling with his people. Now God has come in the form of his son to dwell with his people. Church, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though all the world around us fall apart, and it is, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship in reverence and in awe by surrendering ourselves fully to the Lord to do His will. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful to you that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you have proved yourself faithful over and over and over again throughout your word, that we can look back and find place after place to find encouragement that you are with your people. Lord, in just reminded of what we heard this morning, you call us not to fear. You call us not to be dismayed. For you are the antidote to our discouragement, to our despondency. You are our God. You are enough. Lord, let us surrender ourselves completely to you in order that we may be built up into your church, that we may glorify you in unity and in love and in truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.